Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this podcast, I'm speaking with Sarah, who is a US nurse, midwife, mother, and recipient of healthcare. We talk about how big business health insurance is crushing the working class in America. She says, as a two-income middle-class family with health insurance, you are just one catastrophic medical emergency away from financial peril. Sarah also relays the tragic story of a friend whose condition was inadequately managed because his health fund wouldn't pay for his annual screening. As a result of this, he was subsequently diagnosed with esophageal cancer. But if that wasn't bad enough, then the health fund wouldn't pay for the treatment program recommended by his doctor because they didn't think it would be cost-effective for someone with advanced cancer. Why is this relevant? Because the Australian private health insurance industry is on the brink of introducing American-style managed care to Australia, where stories like this might become a reality on our shores. So let's delve in a bit deeper and find out why this must never happen to us. So I have sort of an unusual background. So I've seen the healthcare system from a lot of angles, is what I'm saying, from an alternative health perspective from a mental health and nursing perspective, as a nurse, as a patient, as a mother, and as a midwife. Yes, lots of different perspectives. But we're chatting tonight about managed care. So the context for it here in Australia is that Cigna, which you probably have heard about. We are. I live near Hartford, Connecticut, which is the home international headquarters of Cigna. Well, they've put in a proposal along with NIB, who's one of our local health insurance companies, to start operating here in Australia. And the proposal looks very much like managed care. It talks about things like value-based contracting, collecting data. I can see you screwing up your face when I mention these terms. Pay for performance measures. Quite a few people here, medical profession, patients are quite concerned about this. And what I really want to explore is what it means, because we don't really understand what this means to patients Sure. I have a question for you about the Australian system. So how does your healthcare system generally work? Is it a nationalized, sort of like the NHS in England? We have a very good balance. So like the NHS, we have free universal healthcare. Here we have a very functional, good quality public healthcare system. But then we also have a private system. So people who do want to take out private health insurance can do so. And what it usually gives them is choice of their specialist. And at the moment, because we don't have managed care, you can see any specialist, any health provider. You can go to any hospital. It usually gives you better access. But I'm speaking about this from a surgical anaesthetic point of view. It means that you don't have to go on a waiting list. And then it's only consultants or, as you'd call them, attendings in the US. So it's decisions made at that level. So we don't have as many doctors in training in the private system. Yeah, it's really different than the United States. So here in the United States, our insurance is tied to employment. So you, as part of your employment, you get insurance benefits. But also what we've really found in the last 25 years, there's been a huge shift to something called high deductible plans. So when I was a kid growing up, my parents worked, my mom was a school teacher and my dad worked in like a nonprofit sector. 
So in those sectors, insurance benefits tend to be very, very good because your salary isn't quite as good. As a kid, my braces were paid for, which is like almost unheard of. If we ever had to go pick up a prescription from the pharmacy, it was like a $2 copay. I always went to the doctor when I needed to. I grew up in a solidly middle-class family with two working parents who were professionals and had access to preventable healthcare, dental care, vision, because also in the U.S. system, dental and vision somehow aren't a part of healthcare. This is like a whole separate type of health insurance, and it's not probably going to cover the braces for your kids if you need them, which is ridiculous. Anyway, so we have a family friend right now who about a year ago was having difficulty swallowing. And he had had a history of erythesophagus. And I don't think he had been able to go for like an annual endoscopy because again, if you have like a high deductible plan, and I don't know that this is the case for him, but a high deductible plan, you're going to go for an endoscopy yearly. That might cost you $3,500, $4,000. Wow. And when you don't feel particularly sick, that doesn't feel like if you have a family, like the amount of money you're going to want to spend, you know, that's a lot of money. Just to clarify, they're on a high deductible plan. They've got a condition like Barrett's esophagitis, so they need to get an endoscopy annually to check on it. But to get this procedure done, we're looking at three and a half, four thousand dollars $4,000. But because the mm-hmm. high deductible plan, they've got to spend at least $10,000 first before the mm-hmm. insurance will reimburse them. He's having to pay that money out of his, or more. Out of his pocket or more yeah. every year and still pay Correct. $400, $500 a month in insurance premium. Premiums. Yes. So I can just see that people don't go for their screening. No. If you had a family history of bowel cancer and you're needing to have repeat colonoscopies and polypectomies to follow up because you're at high risk of having bowel cancer, I could just see that people wouldn't be coming in for those things because you feel well. That's the nature of screening. You're trying to pick people up when they're still healthy. Exactly. Oh, so what happened to your friend? Oh, he was diagnosed with stage four esophageal cancer. Oh, that's terrible. It is terrible. And then because he is in good health, his insurance company tried to deny him access to cancer treatment. What? But he's got a diagnosis, right? Oh, he was diagnosed with stage four esophageal cancer. And his doctor said, this is the plan of treatment that we think would be best for you because you are in overall very good health. You're not a typical patient that would be receiving this diagnosis. And they're like, "Mm, stage four, we don't, we don't want to pay for that. So then in order to initiate treatment, you have to pony up like $20,000 to initiate your care. So fortunately, his doctor fought with the insurance company and was able to get some things covered. However, so they wanted to do radiation therapy first in a certain way. So the insurance company only agreed to so many weeks of it because of the staging of the cancer. Now, again, how is a big company deciding the plan of care? We have an actual physician who's seen this patient, examined this patient, and has determined this is what we should do. But then the insurance company looks at all of this information on paper, hasn't ever met the person, like, "Mm, no, we'll do that in half the amount of time. So this poor man had radiation that was doubled in dose so he could get the full course of radiation treatment in half the time, which, of course, creates terrible trauma to the body and unnecessary suffering. You could have stretched it out the way that the doctor had wanted to but instead, we have to do it in this like stupid, crazy, shortened way. So then the side effects are going to be much worse and the risk of complication goes up. How is that okay? 
Exactly. And that's the thing about medicine. Not everyone with stage four esophageal cancer is the same. Exactly. You have young, healthy patients. You have people who are older, who've been smoking all their lives. You have people who are frail. It's not the same diagnosis in everybody. It isn't. And like, I appreciate the fact that doing more isn't always the best course of action. But this is a decision that needs to be made with your physician and the patient not actuaries and people looking on paper. How many times as clinicians do we look at a patient chart on paper and expect something very different than what walks through our door? That's the art of giving healthcare. I get it. We don't want to have waste in the healthcare system. We don't want to be overly treating things that don't need that. We don't want to be ordering unnecessary testing. I get that and appreciate that from a nursing model of care We care a lot about reducing cost to patients and the healthcare system and to be efficient with what we have access to. But like when you're talking about someone's life, a father of children, somebody who has a very good likelihood of doing well with a treatment that the doctor has decided upon and offered to a patient, when you've paid, you've paid your dues, you're paying for your health insurance and you expect it to work for you when you need it the most and you have to fight with them while you have a terrible diagnosis and you feel awful, this is inhumane and it is a cruel system that is based on money and not the highest level of health. Oh, that's terrible for your friend. He's doing quite well. Good. But yeah, it's been a very long road and it's been very sad for everybody. And it is truly insult to injury to then have to be worried about like, if I do this, and I die, am I going to leave my family in financial peril? Oh, gosh, what a terrible thing to have to think about. It is a terrible thing to have to think about. Patients have to navigate this all the time. Am I going to just put $20,000 on a credit card right now with a shot of giving myself longer to live to see my children through life events? Or how do I argue with some big insurance company that doesn't believe that I have any shot at recovering or having a good longer quality of life? It's difficult to talk about these types of things because it's so intimate to your life. It's vulnerable. And I think as Americans, we feel kind of stupid when we don't understand our own insurance, that we think it's supposed to work a certain way. But if you're lucky enough to be enjoying relatively good health and you don't have to navigate the system, you don't really know. Like, I don't know what my coverage is truly. If like, let's say me or my spouse have a cardiac arrest or a stroke or something, I don't really know what our bottom line cost would be. I can look and see $10,000. It seems like that might be the max amount that I'd have, that our family would have to pay probably that wouldn't financially devastate us. It wouldn't be great. We'd have to pay it off over time, but that wouldn't send us into bankruptcy. But in this country, being in poor health and being underinsured or poorly insured elevates your risk of bankruptcy and financial hardship and poverty astronomically. Wow. So stressful. So my husband and I, we've had insurance, but about 2009 or so, His very large company that he used to work for, which employs thousands and thousands of people all over the world, he doesn't work there anymore, abruptly sent us a card in the mail saying that we were going to be shifted to a high deductible plan. They're like, good news. Your insurance coverage is going to be so much better. You have a high deductible plan. And so my kids were little at the time. So for us to see the pediatrician, it's $92 just to walk in the door. Wow. And then the way that we bill is, you know, based on time. 
So if it's a 15 minute visit or a 35 minute visit or multiple different things, like when you're on the provider side, you kind of have to list all the things you've done. So if we're talking about asthma and allergies and mental health, those are all different kind of billable things. But for me, I'm walking in the door for $92. If I have two sick kids, that's times two. Wow. And you're already paying like $800 a month, at least, for access to this. You know, kids break arms and get sick and go to the pediatrician a lot. And now you have like a $10,000 high deductible plan. You're already paying what you were paying. And then you are, every time you go to the doctor, you're like, how much is this going to cost? Every time you fill a prescription, you're like, how much is this going to cost? Those actually make me the craziest. Most of us in our household take medication. So under my husband's prior insurance, we paid something like seven to $800 a month for access to this coverage. And generic versions of medications would be mm, about $130 a month per person. Whoa. And our deductible was so high that even with multiple people taking these medications, there was no way we were going to meet our deductible. So there are these other things called insurance coupon programs where you can put in the medication you're trying to fill and it will list what the price of this medication will be at all of the pharmacies in your geographic area. And so I could use a coupon card and drop the price of this medication down to like $57 a month. But what that meant was while I, the cash price was going down for me, it was no longer going towards my deductible for my insurance. So I literally would be paying money to have insurance that I couldn't afford to use with a middle-class income. Like, God forbid you need eye drops or like a topical ointment because those are small preparation things. But I remember one time one of my kids had like swimmer's ear and the doctor had prescribed an eardrop antibiotic, which is the best course of action of treatment of this because it goes directly in the ear. It's not systemic antibiotics. Really good clinical call. It was going to be like over $100 for a tiny little bottle of eardrops. And I was like, okay, well, I think maybe we need to do the systemic antibiotics because that will be $12 versus like 130 Wow. So when you have a system like this, what ends up happening is a big multifaceted spiral of problems. Number one, providers end up having to prescribe and treat based on what their patients can afford and access. And there are so many different types of insurance plans. And I have no idea as a prescriber what is going to be covered or what isn't. So in my practice as a midwife, there's an extended release medication that is a combination of vitamin B6 and Unisom that is our first management for nausea and morning sickness associated with pregnancy. Sometimes it's covered. Sometimes it's like $300 for people. Wow. This is a vitamin and a very old first generation med. So sometimes it's like a couple bucks for people and for other people, it's like hundreds of dollars. I have no idea what it's going to cost for my patients when I'm writing a prescription. And same for me. Now I have better health insurance now, but you never know what's going to be subject to an out-of-pocket. It's like, it's intentionally confusing for consumers. You're trying to pick a plan that if something catastrophic happens, is it going to bankrupt my family? Yeah. Wow. That is generally what I think about because even as a two-income, solidly middle-class family, you are one catastrophic emergency away from financial peril because you have no idea what's going to happen. You don't know, like, if you're on vacation 
and you're in a terrible accident and you're taken to a hospital and it's like not the hospital system your insurance company likes. Like you just have no idea what you're what you're going to be looking at. So I, my daughter had had an allergic reaction, which she's never had before. While we went to the seashore for just the day, we actually don't even know what caused her allergic reaction. We had thought it was shellfish, but obviously, when you're in an emergency situation, you're going to access healthcare because that's the most important thing in that moment. So we did go to two emergency rooms in one day. The first emergency room we went to was the closest to where we were. Where she had received an EpiPen injection because she was having difficulty swallowing and breathing and I could see her tonsils were touching. So she sounded like she was having quite a severe allergic reaction. Yeah, I haven't seen an all severe allergic reaction like that in a long time. It was definitely not enjoyable. I'd like to not do that ever again. She is fine and I'm grateful for that. So into the emergency room, they um, observed her for three hours. She improved a lot, stabilized, went home. And then about an hour or two after we got home, her lips and mouth started to swell a second time. So we did not go back to the same emergency room because that was about 45 minutes away from where we lived. So we went to our nearest children's hospital um, and she was admitted for observation, which is also an insurance thing here in the United States. When you're in for observation is different than in for admission to the hospital. So to the patient, it's the same thing, but how your insurance pays for that is quite different. Um, that has really deleterious impact on our elderly population here in the United States. I mean, my husband does not work in healthcare and he is very anxious about the cost of things. And so he did look at me, he's like, really? Do you really think we need to go to the hospital for this? I was like, yes. Yes, we do. We absolutely do. But like that is the ingrained thinking here for people. And I think that's a really important thing for people in other parts of the world who are considering any type of an American system that like part of do I go to see the doctor? Do I go to get health care? Part of that decision making for patients is can I afford it? Well, it counters against what insurance does. Like we have car insurance, you have house insurance. It's there as a, as a safety measure. In my lifetime, it used to be. You know, when I was a kid under my parents' insurance, like, thank God for these great insurance benefits. This is what insurance is for. This is wonderful. But now the system itself is so complex and there is so much money to be made within the system of insurance that it is, I believe, intentionally confusing for the consumer and there are people who make billions and billions of dollars off of the system. So who's making the billions and millions out of insurance, do you think? Oh, the insurance industry. Cigna, United Healthcare, Aetna. These insurance companies make so much money. Does that get returned back into healthcare, do you think? No, it's supposed to, and they will tell you it does. But there is no evidence to support that, right? Because if they were returning and investing back into healthcare systems, then the United States would enjoy a higher level of health. But when you look at the broader scope of insurance, you want to spend the least amount of money to make the highest profit margin. I mean, that's the most simplistic way I can break it down. And the more complex the system gets, the easier it is to kind of make money in strange ways. And so people believe it that I have been working hard, I have a good job. So therefore, even though my insurance is kind of confusing, it's going to be there for me for when I need it. Have you had any experience, any patients who've had either care denied or care delayed because of their insurance? Absolutely. Absolutely. So mental health is usually a whole separate thing. 
mental health doesn't even like go into your regular plan either. There's usually a mental health benefit if you're lucky. And in the United States, we have a real crisis of access to mental health care and services, um, in addition to many other specializations. But mental health in particular is dire. So accessing simple things like therapy, you know, which as healthcare providers, we want our patients to be proactive. You should have a therapist to do these things so that you are like not in crisis, but avoiding crisis. Many times, many of the therapists don't even take insurance because they don't get reimbursed enough. So going to see a therapist might cost you anywhere from $120 to $200 for 45-minute sessions. That's not covered by your insurance. Wow. How does this affect women who are pregnant and needing obstetric care? So prior to the Affordable Care Act, your insurer could just deny maternity coverage. Now it's no longer permissible. And this has been challenged in court a bunch of times. Previously, they'd be like, oh, we don't cover contraception and it could be cost prohibitive. But now contraception is covered without a copay. Although there are lots of things in court for like religious organizations who don't want to have to pay for contraception. That's a different discussion. So when my husband and I were married, uh, we had our first child sort of at the beginning of his career and my career. And I had health coverage and I made sure that there was a maternity benefit. And so I had very good insurance. So this is like 18 years ago now. And so the total cost to my entire pregnancy, prenatal care, my out-of-pocket cost was like a $20 copay or something, which was amazing. So fast forward two years when we were having our second child, my husband now has a really good paying job that we were covered under his insurance. And that birth, ultrasounds were not covered. So every time I had an ultrasound, it was hundreds of dollars. And we had to pay several thousand dollars for the birth. Wow. And that's a two-year difference. And because we were young, single income, basically, family at the time, it kind of took us years to bounce back from that. Yes. Because that was like a huge cost. And so in the United States, we have this sort of rugged individualism idea of like, well, I should have been more responsible with my money. We should have anticipated that cost. And I do feel like insurance companies know this and manipulate this a little bit because there is a level of shame in not being prepared financially for things that arise. Like I'm having a baby. I should be able to afford this. We've had a lot of job changes in the last few years between my spouse and I. And so we've had insurance changes So trying to understand our insurance benefits and what gets covered and what doesn't, you feel like you're in a roulette game, right? Like you look at the coverage, you're like, I hope this is what we need. I think this is going to be covered. But you can't even find like a list of medications that are going to be covered under the plan that you want until you're on that plan. You have to like sign into it before you know what you're even getting, which would be like, imagine buying a house, sight unseen, never going to the neighborhood, it's a little bit like here in Australia, we've tried to standardise it. So we have basic bronze, silver, gold products across all the different companies. So they're meant to have a standard minimum set. However, there is a lot of confusion and overlap. So you can get gold coverage, which costs more than silver, but offers actually less. You can see it's starting to sneak into the Australian healthcare system. But is there anything else that you'd want to share with me? So I would definitely encourage anyone not in the United States to really consider and look at the data about what are healthcare outcomes in the United States. We spend the highest amount of money per capita with poorer outcomes than many of our counterparts in other industrialized nations. 
So I think that should give everyone pause when we're looking at a shiny package that a company that makes billions of dollars is putting together as a way to make money. I think insurance companies could do a lot of good, but ultimately at the end of the day, they exist to make money for their shareholders. And that's really important to remember because if it sounds too good to be true, it definitely is. Very sage words of advice there, Sarah. We've got a moment in Australia where we can really prevent us following in your footsteps with our healthcare system. Well, you know, I hope that things go well for you and that you don't end up with a managed care competition of insurers coming into your country. I don't think it makes things better for patients. I don't think it makes things better for providers. I think it makes a lot of new administrative work for everybody on both sides as a patient and as a provider. Yep. I'm talking to a few Americans now and I'm I'm getting the same message multiple ways, but I'm hearing it. I'm hoping the decision makers here in Australia hear it. So thank you. Thanks very much for sharing your experiences with us. Oh, you're welcome. So there you go. A pretty sobering firsthand account of what managed care is like in the US from someone who experiences it at all levels. If this podcast has made you very concerned, then the first thing you can do is visit the Send the Eagle Home website, where you'll find a lot more resources that you can read, listen and watch, and where you'll also find the links to your federal member so that you can write to them and let them know that you're concerned about managed care coming to Australia. If you're the type of person who needs some numbers to convince you, then let me share some with you. So from this year's Commonwealth Fund report, which is an independent research and think tank, It shows that Australia's health system ranks third best overall. Prior to this year, we consistently came in second. We came first overall in terms of equity and health outcomes, and second best in the world in terms of administrative efficiency. Where we didn't do so well and what pulled our ranking down was in terms of access. And that was taking into account things like the ramping of ambulances at emergency departments, surgical waiting lists, and dental care which is very limited in our free universal healthcare system. And the US, not surprisingly, came in last. So we're doing well in terms of what we deliver, but how much is this costing us? If you look at spending as a proportion of gross domestic product or GDP, then Australia spent the second lowest of those high-income countries. We spend about 9.5% of our GDP on health, whereas the US spends almost double that. Nearly 17% of the GDP is spent on health, which amounts to trillions of dollars. The other thing that Sarah mentioned was that in the 90s, there was a change in health policies to include ones that have higher deductibles. It's the amount of money that you need to spend completely out of your own pocket before any of your health insurance kicks in. And in the US, it can be tens of thousands of dollars. Now, looking at data from APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, the number of policies that now require an excess or co-payment is over 80%. And this has risen significantly over the last 20 years. Also, about 20 years ago, the number of policies that did not have any exclusions was minimal. And now, at least 40% of health insurance policies have exclusions. That's things that they will not cover you for. So you can see it is becoming increasingly complex to know what insurance policies cover what, and we are heading in the same direction as the US. Sarah also talked about the profitability of health insurance companies. So again, looking at the latest figures from APRA for the most recent financial year ending the 30th of June, 2021, 
there's been almost a doubling of profit for the private health insurance industry over the last year. Net profits after tax were $1.5 billion, which represented nearly a 94% increase. Now, that doesn't include the deferred claims liability. The health insurance industry was asked to put away $1.4 billion at the start of 2020 to cover an anticipated surge in health needs due to COVID. Now, that surge never came. So most of the private health insurance companies are still hanging on to that deferred claims liability. Some have returned it to their customers. And that's a good question to ask if you have health insurance. Has your company returned any of that deferred claims liability back to you? So they've recorded $1.5 billion in net profits after tax. And there's a $1.4 billion of deferred claims liability. So that makes a significant profit for the health insurance companies in the last year, when most of us have been struggling due to COVID. Now, this has all come to our attention because of the Honeysuckle Health proposal. Honeysuckle Health is a combination of Cigna, which is a large US health insurance company, and the Australian NIB Healthcare. It's a 50-50 arrangement. And the recent end-of-year financial report to the market from NIB showed that base net profit increased by 84% to $160 million. And the CEO of Cigna made nearly $20 million in the last financial year. Now, CEO remuneration is approved by the board. So whilst we're looking at that, let's look at the remuneration for the board members of Medibank Private. Over the last five years, their remuneration has increased by an average of 9.5% per year. Now, this is far greater than the 1.5% average wage growth that has occurred during that time as well as the 1.5% indexation of the rebates that they're providing to their customers for health insurance. We've got more of these facts coming out in a fact sheet, as well as the graphs and the evidence behind them. They should be coming to the ASA website soon, and I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Don't forget, if you're concerned, visit the Send the Eagle Home website and write to your federal member. Until then, hope you stay safe out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, theasa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.